sure I even understand what they're doing when they're cloning, but if there were such a thing, I would love to clone Nancy Churchill and bring at least one back to Franklin Square with me to play the piano. Um, accompaniment is a very, very important part of singing. It's an extension, biblically even. The instruments are not ends in themselves. They're, they're, uh, they're extensions of your voice. That's why we call it an accompaniment. And um, Nancy does such an excellent job with that. I want to uh, thank those of you who participated in that wonderful talent show last night. Um, I, I just so thoroughly enjoyed that. I love the fact that as Reformed believers... Uh, we don't have to be uptight about laughing at things that are humorous and appreciating poetry and music and so on. That was just a delightful time, uh, especially our dear brother Russell's poetry that he does. Um, really outstanding stuff. I, uh, I guess next to uh, the obedience to the Word of God, probably the next highest compliment a preacher can get is someone does poetry like that based on it. However, I really have to single out John Sanchez's performance last night. <laughs> Where John? Where'd he go? Where, where is that guy? He, yeah, there, John, w- when I see David Letterman back in New York, I'll put in a good word for you, okay? <laughs> that, was, that was classic. Um, also, this is all from a miscellaneous category here. I, once again, Len, before you leave, this is, I, I, am, I am very autocratically, I'm going to appoint you as the, as the historian for the, uh, for the camp. So you've been emeritized as director? Okay, you're the archivist and historian. I want to give you this wonderful pile of pictures. I, there's really too many here for me to single out, but this one is wonderful that I particularly like. This is Daniel in the lion's den with hearts coming up. Not only were the lions silenced, but Daniel loved those lions because God put them there. That's a good example of the lion. Uh, the, there will no more harm in all of my holy mountains. So these, how are we going to use these? Are we going to have a museum for these? We'll, we'll, we'll figure out something. Okay. Well, and, I'm and in, some of them will go in the newsletter. I'm entrusting them to your care. Take good Remember, those are the budding Thomas Kincaids of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, you know, I wonder if Larry McCarg ever sleeps. This man seems to know something about everything and everything about some things. Uh, you really don't need an encyclopedia of botany if you have Larry McHarg. And uh, I was thankful to be part of about 45 minutes of that nature walk yesterday. Uh, but uh, I just among other things, Larry keeps up with what's going on when we're up here at family camp. And that's no small feat. I can barely pick up a radio station up here. So I don't know how you got the news. But it's very interesting how things that go on in the media reflect the kinds of things we've been learning this week. Uh, Larry told me yesterday, remember the Burnham family, Mr. and Mrs. Burnham, the missionaries in the Philippines uh, who were captured, and, and Mrs. Burnham escaped, uh, but Mr. Burnham was killed, as you know, just a few weeks ago. Uh, Larry told me yesterday that the guerrilla group uh, that uh, had captured the Christian missionaries and there were other Christian workers who were captured as well, and I believe others killed too, weren't there? There were some others that were killed. The Philippine army caught up with the group and they killed its leader yesterday. And this shows how the Lord is in heaven, he rules, and it is a very, very dangerous thing to mess with his church. It really is. And so please keep in mind there is that existential aspect of what you learned in Daniel. And a little bit later in the question time, I want to develop one of those things because you wonder, what about, what about persecution and opposition? How does that fit with the theme of the kingdom of God? Well, we'll comment on that a bit later. Now here's my format. 
Um, Bill sort of gave me carte blanche. That's a dangerous thing with a preacher, Bill, it really, especially with me. Um, what I'm going to do is this. You're going to have your three... Everybody have the three-page handout? Okay. You, anybody need it? You don't have enough? I tried to get enough done. Some, some of you may need to share. Um, what I want to do this morning is give you, and I emphasize this, a very brief overview of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. I'm basically going to go through what's in the handout, make a couple of notes, and you could take that home and study it, because this is a hotbed of controversy between dispensationalists and those who hold a traditional view or the Reformed view of that text. Um, and so I want to do that with you. But what I would also want to do is field a few of the written questions that were given to me, a couple in particular that I'd like to take time with, and hopefully be done by 10.30. Um, those of us who have reached 50 and above realize that when you've had coffee in the morning, there comes a point at which, as wonderful as it is to listen to a speaker, you need to use the restroom. And uh, so we'll try to break about 10.30, and, um, and then I'll stick around for a while uh, to answer any questions. But I think you're all tired and uh, you have listened so well all of this time, I don't want to wear out my welcome with you, but I think we can deal with some of these questions that should tie some things together. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our Lord, we can say that it has been good for us to be here in this week. We are thankful that no longer do we need to worship at Jerusalem at an earthly temple but where your people are gathered together in your name, you are there in the midst of them, and we enjoy the kinds of fellowship and worship and praise and thanks that we have enjoyed this week in communion with the saints. And we bless and praise you for that. And we thank you, our Father, that we do not meet as friends. We are thankful that we meet as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the bonds of that profound relationship that is far beyond anything any in the world can imagine. We thank you, our Lord, that you are, may have made us part of your church, of your family, and that we enjoy that family fellowship here at this aptly named family camp. And now, our Lord, minister to us as we read your word and as we discuss some of these things that have been on our lips in the past days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. We've got about 50 minutes. Let's see what we can do. Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. This again is, you will notice, after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, it is um, roughly the same time as the, the lion's den story that we went through last night. Um, we don't exactly know exactly at what point uh, that happened, but we are now in the first year of the reign of Darius, uh, the first year of the reign of the Persian Empire. Incidentally, one person yesterday corrected my history. The Persians did not capture all of Greece. It was only the, the eastern portions of what we know of as Greece that were taken under the umbrella of the Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 9, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord, of Jehovah, through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. 
Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Incidentally, as we're reading this parenthetically, you might think of this as a very appropriate prayer for the churches of today. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which you've driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they've committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we've rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed Your law and has departed so as not to obey Your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. And He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, and yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes, and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, and therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. 
Seventy weeks, or better, seventy-sevens, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Thus far the reading of the Word of God. This doesn't have anything in particular to do with the 70 weeks, but parents, I want to encourage you with something. It's interesting when you look at verse 21. Daniel notes that the angel reached him about the time of the evening offering. Daniel hadn't been able to offer up the evening offering for about 65 years. He was a stranger in Babylon and he was away from the temple. But he never forgot those times of worship. He never forgot those times when he was a little child with his family, perhaps at points right around the temple, seeing the sacrifices. And parents, it's very important for you to realize that your children don't forget their times of worship. They don't forget you're bringing them to church. They don't forget the Lord's Day. They don't forget preaching. They don't forget prayers. They don't forget, even though they may seem to have forgotten for time. And it's a beautiful thought. For 65 years, he'd never had that privilege. But Daniel still worshipped at the time of the evening sacrifice. God doesn't forget your labors. Your labors, parents, are not in vain in the Lord. I remember, I think I told you this story two years ago. A very dear man, still alive, but he's moved away from Franklin Square, regrettably, a man that became like a, a father in the, in the faith to me, um, Phil Herendine. Uh, Phil's dad had been a very faithful, godly man and uh, was publishing Christian literature during the Depression when people thought he was crazy, wondering how he could put food on his table to provide for his family. And dear Mr. Herendine had a family of, I think, seven children, never lacked for food. He was a wonderful, faithful man. Sadly, Phil was not. Uh, Phil rebelled in his youth. He strayed away from the Lord. He married outside the faith. He was nearly killed in World War II. And uh, until the death of his mother, which came in the mid-70s, uh, Phil had strayed away from the Lord until a very faithful pastor, kind of a Daniel in the pulpit, sat down with Phil and said, Phil, you heard the gospel from your youth. Now, what are you going to do with Christ? And the Lord used that to convert Phil. At any rate, he was at our table one day at lunch, and we were having devotions, and tears came down Phil's cheeks. And he said, you know, when I was not a Christian, when I was not converted, he said, the Lord never let me forget those times of family worship with my mom and dad. And that had continued to stay with him. So your labor is teaching your children, catechizing them, bringing them to church. 1 Corinthians 15:58, Dr. Machen's favorite verse. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Even when that work is not the work of the ministry per se, but parenting. 
for as much as you know that your labors are not in vain in the Lord. As I was telling a couple of you today, I'm still simple enough to be like a child before the Bible. I really believe what God says in that regard. Okay, take out your sheets. And um, Daniel 9 and verses 24 through 27 has been called the dismal swamp of Old Testament interpretation. And after going through the notes and uh, reminding myself of these things today and reading some other uh, articles early this morning, I was reminded again that this is a real, I wouldn't call it dismal, but it is a swamp. It's difficult to know how to get a handle on some of these things. So I don't have all the answers, but let me tell you how the, the church, the Reformed churches have dealt with these over against our dispensational friends who have a very different way of looking at it. And this sort of help you a little bit uh, when you are uh, perplexed by the left-behind theology that ought to be left behind as theology. It'll at least help you know where some of these people are coming from. Remember that Daniel has prayed. And uh, this is the time at which an edict is going to come uh, that the Israelites may go back to the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Uh, God is... Uh, going, Daniel is going to see the answers to the prayer that he has offered up so passionately. The wonderful example of prayer. David pours out his heart to God, asking that the Lord would remember his covenant. And it's almost as if God says, now it's time. I'll send down Gabriel, and I'm going to tell Daniel how, beginning right now, I'm going to start answering his prayer. And the 77s are really the answer to Daniel's prayer. These 77s that God has determined answer the prayer that Daniel has offered up. Now, if I had the time to do it, I would try to take verses 24 through 27 and look at the prayer through that grid, and that would help you understand it more. But I'll leave that to you and my fellow pastors for your own work. 77s, Gabriel gives the answer to Daniel. 77s or 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Again, 77s is the proper language. The dispensational view is to take this quite literally and say this is 70 times 7-year periods or about 490 years. And there are some Reformed people who do something similar. But the traditional view, um, as I think probably more correct, 7s simply mean a completed or a perfect number of something. This is simply the period to fulfill the prophecy. It's going to be 77s, the perfect period of time to fulfill this prophecy and answer Daniel's prayer. Or, it is ten jubilee periods. The jubilee period was seven years in the Old Testament. Now remember, this prophecy, according to the traditional view, I believe the right view, is going to have its fulfillment in the first coming of Christ. How did Christ inaugurate his ministry? In Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, he says... I've come, he says, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, among other things, to proclaim liberty to captives. I have come to bring in the fullness of the jubilee period. And so this is a full period of jubilee years, so to speak, before the Messiah would come. Remember, you don't interpret the Bible literally, per se. You interpret it biblically. And the term 77s with other clearer portions of scripture would seem to turn us to this jubilee period that heralded in Christ's coming. It is 70 weeks for your people and for your holy city. Your people is to be taken literally. He is referring, dispensationalists agree, to Jews, or we would say primarily to Jews, with reference to all the Old Testament saints. But we differ from dispensationalists, and they say it is Jews of the past and of the future. Because as you're going to see, dispensationalists see a long gap between the 69th and the 70th week. 
So we agree with dispensationalists that it's Jews, but we say these are the Jews of the Old Covenant period, which had its definitive end in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Two, here are the purposes, and there are six of them given, and there's different ways you can link them together. Let me just go through them uh, one by one. Number one, to finish, or literally to restrain the transgression. Now, dispensationalists understand this as the end of Jewish transgressions prior to the return of Christ. They're looking ahead, and they see that there's a certain amount of sin by Jews that will be finished up or wrapped up right prior to Christ's return, His second coming. And there are some among the traditional views who believe that this is a culmination of Israel's transgression as a nation. 77's Daniel and Israel as a nation, as a corporate entity, going to fill up its transgressions. Others say, as listed here, it is a restraining of the transgression. Transgression restrained by Christ's work of redemption and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. For example, Hebrews 8 and verses 7 through 11 would explain some of these things. Daniel is concerned for the holiness of God's people. And so that would be another way traditionalists may understand or reformed people would understand this. Depends on where you put the emphasis on finish or restrain. Second, to make an end of sins or to seal up sins. The dispensational view is that this refers to Revelation 20 and verses 1 through 3, the binding of Satan so that he cannot wreak havoc on the world anymore. The more traditional or the reformed view that has been held throughout the history of the church is either this is referring to um, reserving Israel's sins for punishment. That's a possible view here to put all of those sins together as it were and say now they are to be punished as they were in A.D. 70, or as I've represented here, to blot out the sin of the Lord's people, particularly elect Jews, by Christ's work of redemption. So both of those views have been held within the Reformed or the traditional exegetical view. And to make atonement for iniquity. That's certainly or reconciliation for iniquity, better atonement. This is understood by dispensationalists as the application of Christ's work. The belief of dispensationalists is that this refers to the conversion to Christ of many Jews at His return. They will be literally reconciled to the Lord in conversion. However, the Hebrew word is to make atonement for, and so the historic, traditional view held by everyone except dispensationalists is that this is speaking of the atonement that was rendered on the cross at Calvary within that 77 period culminating in the coming of Christ, atonement would be made and to bring in everlasting righteousness. According to Dwight Pentecost and his volume, Things to Come, which is a primer of the dispensational view, he says, quote, this is referring to the millennial kingdom promised to Israel when God would on the earth in a literal millennium bring in everlasting righteousness. The traditional view has been that this is referring to Christ our righteousness. God would bring in that righteousness that in shadowy and typical form is shown in the Old Testament. And to seal up vision and literally the prophet. This by dispensationalists is believed to mean during an earthly millennial reign of Christ and there would be a cessation of visions and prophecy because Christ would be on the earth 
to give such things to people. However, the traditional view has been, and this incidentally has tremendous implications for our dealing with those who believe in the continuation of tongues and prophecy as revelatory modes of communication. Tongues and prophecy in the Scripture are not some kind of heightened uh, sense of illumination. Uh, Tongues and prophecy were means by which God gave His Word. Prophecy was the Word of God given by immediate revelation in the language of the people. Prophecy, that was prophecy, tongues is the Word of God given in a foreign language by immediate revelation. This speaks of the sealing up of the vision and the prophet. And the traditional view has said, by and large, this is referring to the completing and the confirming of the Old Testament mode of revelation. When our confession says these former ways of God revealing His will to His people having now ceased, it indicates that these modes of special revelation were completed with the completion of the Scripture. Now, personally, I think that makes a strong case to say that the canon of Scripture was completed by A.D. 70, but that's, that's for a whole other time. And to anoint the most holy place, or literally a most holy thing, or the dispensational view, this is speaking of the anointing of the holy place in a restored millennial temple, uh, but the traditional view held by non-reformed and reformed exegetes is that this refers to the anointing of Christ who is the Holy One, who is the temple of God at His baptism. Remember, 77s, the Lord is going to bring redemption for His people. And so this refers to the anointing of Christ at His baptism by the Holy Spirit. He is the preeminent Holy One or Holy Thing. Now verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. The, there's, a, there's differences among all groups in this. Uh, dispensationalists by and large say this is the decree of Artaxerxes, 445 B.C., Nehemiah 2. Uh, but that was, that was not first really to build Jerusalem. Now, that had another purpose. Others say the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C. Probably that would be the answer. Go back, rebuild your city, rebuild your home, and so forth. Uh, but one of these commands, and remember that that decree of Cyrus came right after Daniel got this vision. It was right at that time that this clock, so to speak, begins to tick. Until Messiah the Prince, uh, dispensationalists usually will say this refers to Christ's triumphal entry. The traditional view has been this is speaking of Christ's baptism and the entrance upon his public ministry. Now you see what you have. You have seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven periods of ten to rebuild the city and the temple. Sixty-two periods, or sixty-two periods of these seven, from the rebuilding of the city and its reestablishing until Messiah comes. So what Daniel sees in his vision is a certain set of things that pertain to the Israelites going back to the land and being there his immediate concern. But there's far more to come. Daniel's concerned about the sins of his people and redemption. God says another 62 of these sevens. And there will be a culmination of things with respect to your prayer. Now verse 26. Here it is after the 62 weeks. um, And now after the 62 sevens, that is after the seven sevens for rebuilding the city and the temple. 
Now another 62 sevens. The traditional view says, and it has been said this is virtually uniform, universal among Christian exegetes, except dispensationalists. Now you're in the final seven that is that is that comes into play in Christ's earthly ministry. Dispensationalists, now follow this. Dispensationalists say those sixty-nine weeks stopped when Christ was crucified. And that plan for Israel had to stop. It was blown, so to speak, because they crucified the Messiah. God stops dealing with Israel as a nation. He begins to deal with the Gentiles. But in the future, God is going to rapture up the Gentile believers, and I would gather the Jewish believers too at that time, and He is going to have a seven-year period. There will be a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth, which is Daniel's 70th week. So they see Daniel's 70th week as future. The traditional view, and I think frankly the only view that is the prima facie view, the the face value view of the text, is the 70th week comes right after the 69th week and it speaks symbolically and prophetically of Christ's ministry. So in that, and you see that here in the language, after the 62 weeks, that is after the 7 weeks plus the 62 weeks, or in the 70th week, number of things happen. Messiah will be cut off. The word cut off means to have a violent, violent death or to suffer the death penalty. Now what's interesting is that dispensationalists do say this is referring to the crucifixion of Christ, which shouldn't have happened apparently according to the old line of dispensational thinking. And of course we agree, Messiah is put to death. The people of the prince that shall come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and there will be desolations that will come about. The language again of verse 26. And dispensationalists agree at that point with the traditional view that is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem by Roman armies led by Titus in A.D. 70. That language of desolations that Luke picks up in Luke 21. But now things change. Verse 27. Now the dispensationalists say, this is way in the future. Christ is cut off. Jerusalem is judged as a nation. But now there's something that's going to come way in the future to us. Then he, he on the dispensational view, is Antichrist, the leader of a restored Roman Empire during a future tribulation period. You want to learn about that? Read the Left Behind series. If you want to read good theology, don't read the Left Behind series. He, on the traditional view, refers to the Anointed One, or Messiah, Jesus Christ. And again, He is the subject. Messiah is cut off. He will destroy. He, He, He. He is the subject here. Then He shall confirm a covenant with many weeks. He shall make a covenant firm with many. On the dispensational view, this is Antichrist. Antichrist is going to make a peace covenant with Israel in the future tribulation period. On the traditional view, he refers to Christ and it speaks of Christ by the actions referred to in verse 24 because there's parallelism here, ratifying the new covenant by his active and passive obedience. That's the glory of the new covenant. It's grounded in Christ. It's not grounded in any human action at all. It is grounded in Jesus and it is firm. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is why by faith alone, in Christ alone, you have everlasting life. His righteousness and His atonement are made firm in that covenant. 
He shall confirm a covenant with many, dispensational view, with many Jews in the future. Traditional view, with many, either with the elect or probably more properly, with elect Jews. Daniel is concerned here with his people, with the Jews, and that's the answer that he gets. Well, whether you say with elect Jews only or with all of the elect, Jew and Gentile, it's with the elect confirmed at the cross. It is with many. And it is for one week or for one seventy. Dispensational view, that's in the future. That 70th year is future. It is a seven-year tribulation period following a large gap after the 69th week. On the traditional view, the 70th seven immediately follows the 69th and begins with the commencement of Christ's public ministry. He says the Jubilee period is here. And that's what Daniel's looking for. He's a captive. He wants freedom. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty to captive. In the middle of the week, for the dispensationalists, the middle of a future seven-year tribulation period. Now, this is why you've got pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. I guess they might have semi-trib. I don't know what, but they're all kind of working around with what this has to do with the future. This has to do with the past. In the middle of that 70th week, the time of Christ's crucifixion, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Dispensational view, it is Antichrist breaking covenant with the Jews and forbidding them to continue sacrifice, beginning a great time of tribulation. Bringing an end to sacrifice and offering, read Hebrews 9 and 10, or all of Hebrews. The Old Testament sacrificial system, both bloody sacrifices and unbloody offerings, is done away with by Christ's death on the cross. The curtain is torn in two. There is no longer need of the high priest to go in the most holy place once a year with the blood of an animal. You have the blood of Christ and an instant access to the throne of grace. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. This is for the dispensationalists, the time of a future great tribulation, left behind series. Traditional view, this is speaking of the wars of the Jews against the Romans in the Uh, decades prior to A.D. 70, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And that language, the wing of abomination, shall be one who makes desolate. It's not coincidence, folks. Remember, the Bible interprets the Bible. Matthew 24 and Luke 21, the abomination that causes desolation is the language taken from this text. And Luke makes it very clear. When you see Roman armies surrounding the city, know that its desolation is near. You know, it's amazing, my dear friends, what happens when you just go to the Bible to interpret the Bible. And don't go to the Bible the way Harold Camping goes to the Bible, because Harold Camping goes to his own imagination, not to the Bible. Just go to what the Bible says in its context. Even until the consummation, one that is decreed, is poured out on either the desolate or on the one who makes desolate. And so the dispensational view, the return of Jesus Christ in the future to defeat Antichrist and to usher in an earthly millennial kingdom, the traditional review held by most reformed people is this is referring to the completion of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 or it could even refer to the judgment on the Roman Empire if you understand that as the desolator. And that would be seen, for example, in Revelation 17 and 18. Now, notice in these last two items, the wings of abominations even until the consummation, you can make an argument 
that those are post-70 weeks. Uh, you can make an argument, as some have, and I'm, again, this is a swamp in some areas, that the 70 weeks for Israel end when Stephen is stoned, and at that very point, God is calling out from the Jews, the apostle to the Gentiles. God's saying, dealing with you as a nation is done. Others say the 70 weeks culminate in A.D. 70, and at least at this point, that makes more sense to me, when the Lord is done dealing with Israel as a nation. What does 1948 have to do with prophecy? It doesn't have anything to do with prophecy. I personally believe God's going to convert a great number of Jews in the future. And it's a whole lot easier to do that if they're all in one place. But I don't think that you can relate that to prophecy. So that's just a little introduction to these things. Um, and I know if I field questions, I won't get to the ones that are written out. So hold your questions, and maybe we'll get a chance to get to them a little bit later. But one question that was asked, and I've heard this, and I've actually thought about it myself, um, I really think bears answering and takes many of these things and, and makes them very practical to you. One person asked, I desire to be bold, humble, as Daniel was, with reverence and charity to others, sharing the gospel truth and challenging the authorities. Daniel waited until he was asked, until he was sought for an answer. Is there a balance between charging in and waiting to be asked? That's a good question. Now, we're to confess our transgressions one to another. And I'm not sure this is a transgression, but, but I, I do want to clarify something to you. Um, as a New Yorker, and by nature, and because of my sin. Being bold is not one of my problems, um, as you've gathered. However, um, because I am a sinner, I'm afraid that my boldness sometimes can be um, mixed with too much of my own unrighteous anger. And I have been smitten in my conscience many times with the fact that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And that's a very important lesson for us all to learn. God doesn't need our wrath. He has his own our responsibility is to speak the truth in love. Truthing it in love. And that has been a big help to me, although I'm far from perfect in it. I'm not convinced that John the baptizer said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He didn't need to say that. And I question whether Herod would really have even wanted to listen to him if he spoke like that. You have the same effect if you say, Herod, with all due respect, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And I think that carries more clout. Now, with that in mind, how do you deal with this issue of boldness and so forth? And I want to make a special application for my brothers in the presbytery here. Number one, we don't know everything about Daniel. Daniel does not record every event in his life. These are the events of redemptive history for our instruction. My guess is that because Daniel's whole life, Daniel 4, 11, and 12, shown to people, my guess is that Daniel didn't wait to be asked. He was such a consistent believer on every occasion, I would guess he represented his God. I mean, these weren't glitches in Daniel's personality that you read about. This was his whole life. He would always seek opportunities to speak for his Lord. So don't, don't assume that Daniel, the book, covers everything. The purpose of Daniel is that every knee shall bow, every mouth shall be stopped, 
God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. God thwarts all of his enemies. That's the purpose of this book, and that's why these events are recorded here. What do we do in our case then? Number one, speak in every place that you are called to serve, giving a word for your Savior. Now, this has liberated me. Because as a minister and as one who loves to bring the gospel to people, I always think that if on every occasion I don't have the opportunity to tell everybody about the gospel, I've blown it. And part of that is a pastor. You love to teach people the whole counsel of God. But you can't do that. If you have an obligation in every sphere of service, in your home, in your neighborhoods, at your work, civic associations, wherever it is, to at every point wisely but graciously let people know they breathe God's air and they live in a world in which Christ is king. That is critical to make people know. Because people are horizontal thinkers. They think in terms of this world, and their reference point is this world. And you must at least let people know, they've got to start thinking vertically, that there is, what do the writers say? Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus say, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who rules and reigns. And you put meat on the bones with that by the gospel. That's why I love Abraham Kuyper's statement, however he put it, that there's not a square inch of this world of which Christ does not say, it is mine. And that's, that's the burden of reformed education. And I would suggest, if you want a good primer on that, Abraham Kuyper's volume, Lectures on Calvinism, that were given at Princeton Seminary about 104 years ago or so, are excellent models of how you see the lordship of Christ in various areas of culture. So in every place you are, wherever you're called to serve, speak for your Savior and, and pray that the Lord give you wisdom to do that. You know, you can get that of real basic things. When people say to us, sometimes we hear it, oh, you have such good children. I say, you know, by nature they're sinners. Well, they were born in a Christian home and mom and dad are sinners too, but we try to live out of the grace of God and the gospel. I don't give people an inch. That's why I was twitting them over in the book room. This is, this is my New York way of doing it. You know, I don't give a card to my wife that says, all my love. Because that's idolatrous. And the Lord dashes idols, and I don't want to make my wife an idol and have her get dashed. I want to live with her for a while. So I was twitting them there. I said, you're a Christian gift show. They may not have you come back after this. They said, you got the idolatrous things here. You know, to my wife, all my love this, and all my love that. But at every point, wisely and graciously, let people know they live in God's world and represent what the Word of God says. And what's interesting is there's an Amen Charlie in the heart of people. And they know in their heart of hearts that there is an almighty being who's there. And they breathe his air and so forth. And what I said to you before, remember, you breathe God's air. You know, and people come to me and they say, you know, I'm an atheist. You get that in New York. And my usual response is, this is interesting. God gave you the air so that you could deny the God who gives you life and breath and all things. Okay, now some, now not in an arrogant way, but loving way. Number two, make special addresses to those in authority. No, you don't have to wait to be called. Address those in authority over us. I praise the Lord that a, a chaplain, he's in the PCA, under our ministry in Franklin Square for three years, is now working with officials in the White House. And he's presenting the grace of God in Christ to them. But, but be able to speak to people. And folks, don't just think in terms of the White House. And don't send emails to President Bush. He gets gazillions of them every day, and you'll get a form, form response. How about your local officials? I mean, our senators in New York are Charles Schumer and the wife of our former president. 
And it's a real exercise of my faith to call their offices and raise my concerns about particular issues. Because I know they say, oh, it's that wacko again from Long Island. Boom! But it's not the right thing to do. But even more local officials to say, and don't be embarrassed about your Christian faith. You don't, don't go and be back. He said, I want you to know I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm committed to the historic Christian faith. And I want you to know that coming out of that historic Christian faith, I have a certain conviction about abortion. The historic Christian view is that killing of the unborn is murder. And make them know that. And you can use other arguments to buttress that. But come at your convictions as a Christian. It's a practical denial of Jesus if you don't. And children, young people as well, remember your baptism binds you to be a follower of Christ. And so when you're tempted, a simple thing to say, to load you, think locally. And folks, this, this is not bizarre. You read the life of Teddy Roosevelt. Not that I would have agreed with all of his politics. And you know, Christians are going to differ with one another on these issues. That's okay, so long as Christians work from the Scriptures. But much of Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, he would go around the country and he would give references to the Ten Commandments and say these laws are based on God's commandments. Now, yeah, that could be understood as moralism. It was extracted from Christ. But the moral law binds, according to our confession, all people, both saved and unsaved. Now, there's a practical example. If you want some good ways you can understand what your political thought ought to be, read the larger catechism, Johannes Voss's book on the Ten Commandments, or the um, Free Presbyterian edition of the larger catechism, and just read how the moral law deals with so many of these issues. And then number three, regarding this question. Remember that Daniel was a man of prayer. He prayed for wisdom to understand the king's vision. They prayed that the Lord would uh, make, him, make them healthy and honor their commitments. He prayed in Daniel chapter 9. He prayed in the That's what made him go in the lion's den. Probably prayed there as well. And we minimize that. It's not more important that you speak to your elected officials, folks. It's more important that you speak to Christ. You know, arguably, what Ben Whitner did leading that prayer group this week was more important than what I did in preaching. Now, you need both. But remember that Daniel was a man of prayer, and it is amazing what will happen. If you pray and say, Lord, we have a real burden, we are concerned for our legislator, for these areas, we want to see this person acknowledge the kingship of Christ, and they should. My usual form of address, I don't do it as often as I should, but when I speak to an elected official, is to say, you know, I respect you because God says you're his minister the same way I am. And you're to be a minister for righteousness and not unrighteousness. And God is using you in part to restrain iniquity. So pray that the Lord will give you those opportunities. I'm going to give you an example. Um, Dr. Cravendon, Dr. Henry Cravendon, is a very good friend, a very dear friend and brother. And this man has a deep heart for the land of Uganda. And over the years, he has prayed and others have prayed that they would be able to have a good witness to the leadership in the land of Uganda. It's a smaller country and uh, it's a little bit easier to have that kind of impact than here. Wouldn't you know in the Lord's providence, Dr. Kravendam has gotten to know the wife of President Museveni in Uganda. And Mrs. Museveni, has, who is a believer, has asked Dr. Krabendam some questions about the problems they have with AIDS in Uganda. And Dr. Krabendam and others have explained to them that condoms aren't going to solve the problem, that abstinence should be what they should emphasize, and that within the Christian church there's a commitment to chastity and so on and so forth. And do you think it's a coincidence that the United Nations Commission is baffled 
that the instances of AIDS are beginning to go down in Uganda because they are not so much using condoms as encouraging the people to abstain? And you know, see now, this kind of thing. Now, is that moralism? Well, brothers and sisters, the role of the state is to restrain iniquity. See? And so when it restrains iniquity, no, that's not gospel. But that restraint of iniquity is part of the way God preserves the earth for us to labor in it. Okay. So that's one question. Anybody else want to draw that one out? It's, I know that's been on the minds of many. I know, Ben, you asked a, a similar thing. Right. Now, to my brothers in the Presbytery, I have been very, very grieved by what I've heard about some of the issues that you are facing in this Presbytery. And I'm not speaking against anyone or anything. But it does strike me that within this Presbytery there's a toleration of things that by any standard are contrary to the standards of this church. Now the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is committed to the Westminster Standards as adopted by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in my opinion, as ministers and as members, we all have an obligation to uphold those standards. In the same way a doctor has certain ethical standards that he must uphold, it is even more important that ministers of the gospel and presbyteries and churches uphold those standards. If our standards are wrong, they need to be changed. If our standards are right, and we take a vow believing that they are, they should be upheld. And my dear brothers in the Presbytery, my counsel to you is this. You be loving toward those with whom you disagree. You don't have a right to be bitter and hateful and malicious and arrogant and spiteful. I'm not saying you are, but you don't have a right to be that. But you speak the truth. You speak the truth in love. And my pattern has been, for what it's worth, to sit down and make it a point to be face-to-face -face with a brother with whom I disagree when I must come into contact with that person. And out of love, I want to listen to be sure that I understand what that person is saying because I don't want to bear false witness against my neighbor. But if I'm convinced that in light of the Word of God and the standards of our church, that brother's wrong. Nothing's going to stop me from doing whatever is necessary to prevent him from corrupting the church. So speak the truth and do it in love. Always in love, but speak the truth. So, one other question. There's one about the new commandment. Um, and I, I, it's a, did you ask this one? Daniel in prayer confesses God's covenant to be a covenant of love, and yet Jesus would later say that to love one another is a new commandment. How is Jesus' commandment new? John 13, 34, and 1 John. I appreciate that very probing question. My answer would be that the new commandment is not just love one another, but it's love one another even as I have loved you. The distinct character of new covenant love is that you give your life as Christ gave his life to others. Everything is given. And I think that's why the Westminster Standards have a whole section on the communion of the saints in which love is defined as a binding of ourselves to give our gifts and our graces to others. It's a very distinct love that's imbued with the character of the Christ who's come. But that, that's a quick answer to that. But that would, now do I? All right. May I have about five more minutes, seven minutes? Is that all right?
The restroom, I, I don't know, I'm not getting, I'll take the seven minutes anyway. I want to make this one quick, but I, this is another good one to answer, and then I want to wrap up with a couple closing words. What, what do you say to people who say we live in a post-Christian era? What do you say, when we live, what do you say to people who say we live in a post-Christian era? Well, a little clue. When people throw out these terms, ask them, what do you mean by that? Usually there's not much more discussion because sometimes they don't know what they mean. If I throw out the term quantum physics, all you've got to do is say, now what do you mean by quantum physics? And it'll be a short conversation. So you ask, what do you mean by a post-Christian era? Especially when people don't even understand what Christianity is today in our culture. So how do you define it? Now if we're talking about some historical development or historical phenomenon, we are in a period of time or in an era in our nation's history in which historic Christianity is no longer the dominant religious force in our nation. Well, then, okay, you can understand why they use that term. But, I don't think post-Christian era is a good term to use at all. Because most people are thinking in a grand scheme like this. We have come to the point in which we have bypassed anything like on a culture that is informed by this thing called historic Christianity. And I don't want to concede that for a moment. I want people to understand that while we are living in a period of apostasy, that's coming under the reign of King Jesus. And so I don't want to concede that point to people. Now with that in mind, people say, but wait a minute, we live in a realm of apostasy and there's a time of tribulation and so forth. Certainly this is a post-Christian era. Friends, I want you to think a little bit about what Christ's kingdom is. Will you? And this might help as we wrestle with different eschatological views. When we think of Christian era, we think of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all of the nations. And if nations don't have a lot of disciples in them, or nations with disciples don't seem to be following the Lord, we say it's a post-Christian era. That's not the only thing that's involved in, the great, in, in, in Christianity. Our Lord, we learn this from Daniel, includes persecution and trial as part of his kingdom. Didn't you learn that? You have one section of Daniel in Daniel chapter six, in which or Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter yeah, Daniel seven, in which Daniel is learning about the grand scheme of the kingdom. And that's glorious and rich. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion that will have no end. Chapter eight is about persecution, and there's no contradiction. Why is that? Because while the Lord's making disciples, He's going to make His elect people like Christ. And He does it with trial and pressure and persecution. And that's not contrary to the kingdom of Christ. Because Jesus' first concern is not that all the nations acknowledge Him. His first concern is that those who acknowledge Him be like Him. And He will use persecution and trial in that purpose. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom. The second is apostasy. And this also bears on a culture that is very quickly moving away from anything like historic standards. You know why apostasy is given? It's to test the love of God's people. Deuteronomy 13 is not about apostasy. It's about false teachers who present false gods. And the Lord says, I'm going to send them. I'm even going to let them do signs and wonders to test you, to see if you really are following me or following them. And so when people say, are they doing signs and wonders? I say, I don't know, maybe they are. Are they from the devil from God? I'll say, God may be allowing them to do that. But you listen to that God they present. It's nothing like the God of the Bible. And the Lord wants to, wants to know, 
what God you're going to follow. And it's the same with apostasy. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and verses 8 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 12. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And I do believe this is referring to Antichrist, a consummation at the end of the days, even as there's a spirit of Antichrist in every age. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Consummate act, his return at the last day. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now note the next phrase. Not because they did not receive the truth. They didn't receive the love of the truth. Because the love of the truth is the love of the God who gave those truths, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God is testing our nation with apostasy because the Lord says, all right, call yourself a Christian nation. You really love me? And I pity the way our nation's answering that question because there are all too few who really love the truth of Holy Scripture. But God's sending that because it's a test. In my kingdom, I want to know are you really loyal or not? So think more broadly about what the kingdom is. Not just the Great Commission, persecution to refine the Lord's people, and even apostasy to ask you and me, whom do you love the most? Now, I've already worn out my welcome, and I want to let my yes be yes, but let me close with this. Number one, I want to thank you. I don't want thanks for what I've done. I've had 13 hours of your ears, and your lifetime, and mine, and I count that a great privilege. I really do. And so I am thankful for that time and I've been very, very much refreshed by my time with you. And I want you to be encouraged that the family camp of the Presbytery of Southern California has a baby. You have a baby in the Presbytery of Connecticut and Southern New York. Two years ago when I went back, old as I am, and brassy and not backing down, I went to our Presbytery and said I had the best time in the Presbytery of Southern California family camp, and we need to have one in our little old Presbytery. And Pastor Raleigh Keller's son Calvin was there saying, yes, amen. And so in good Orthodox Presbyterian tradition, we were put on the committee to have a family camp. <laughs> and in good New York tradition, we're going to have a camp in Connecticut. And so this year we have about 35 of our young people. It's not a family camp yet, we're getting there. Uh, but this will be your baby, and uh, that baby will be baptized metaphorically in a couple of weeks up in western Connecticut. So my great thanks to you, because you've got a wonderful thing here with the camp, and you might pray for us uh, that we're able to eventually develop a family camp as well. So thank you for that, and I do love you all as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is great, uh, and I mean it seriously. You're not friends. You are mother and father and brother and sister, and you young ones here, sons and daughters. I didn't get to have my six here with me, but it was great to have these little ones that I could enjoy as well in the Lord. My final words to you, young ones and older ones, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. Let's stand and let's pray.
Our Lord, we pray that You will not make us like Daniel, but make us like Christ. Make us to be obedient and make us in Him to be obedient unto death. We pray that You will bless us with humility and meekness. We ask our Lord that we will have the character of that one who was truly the meekest man in all of the earth before all of the opposition that was against him. Never was there a word of sinful anger. Never was there a word of malice or spite. Never was there an expression of bitterness. Never was there anything but an expression of truth spoken in love. Give us a confidence in a faith in the kingdom of Christ. Our Lord, we pray that You will prevent us as we read the newspaper and hear the news from getting our theology from that. Remind us that Jesus reigns over every bullet that might be shot by a guerrilla army. Jesus reigns over all of the governments of the world, even those that would hate Your people. Jesus reigns over nations like ours that have so departed from the faith that has enriched it. But remind us, our Lord Jesus, that Your way is to take even the most evil purposes of man and turn them for good. And remind us, our Lord, that You will take all of these refiner's fires so that You might make Your people to be as pure gold. And our Lord, we pray also that You will work especially in the Presbytery of Southern California as it grapples with very difficult challenges that are before it. Our God, we pray that You would deliver all of the men from this presbytery, from bitterness and malice and rancor and spite. Remind them, our Lord, that man's wrath does not work the righteousness of God. We pray, our Lord, that you will give humility to every party. We pray that you will give gentleness to every party. And our Lord, we pray that wherever pride would have reared its ugly head, we pray that you would cut off its head And we ask our Lord that you would supplant it with the humility of Christ. In all of that, our Lord, we pray for this presbytery, we pray for all of our presbyteries, and we pray for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Our Lord, this denomination was born out of a desire to be faithful to the standards of historic Presbyterianism. And our Lord, where those standards may need to be changed to be more conformed to your word, then, our Lord, let men operate with integrity to see that done in the way that is established. But, our Father, we believe at this point that these standards represent what Your Word teaches. And so may ministers always teach what is said there as a form of sound doctrine. And may ruling elders be conscientious to be the governors of Your churches, knowing that this is part of our Constitution and it must be upheld. Our God, please, for our sake, for our children's sake, for our children's children's sake, do not let shame of face be ours. And do not, our Lord, let us forget the holy name that you have given to us as your name. And do not let us forget that truth that always must be proclaimed in the church that is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. And use our witness individually, as families, and as presbyteries, as a church, to the end that the nation and nations might hear and know that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords 
and King of kings, and that he will indeed reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us and with our children to the glory of your matchless name. Amen.